You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. At the time, I was in a romantic relationship with someone and had no idea that one of her goals and her collaborators' goals was to compromise my entire digital existence and my family's existence. So for 18 months, my iCloud was compromised. And every time we tried to address it, we could never fully figure out how they compromised me to that level. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On today's show, I've got word that the Federal Trade Commission is updating its health breach notification rule. Ben has the story of an upcoming court case relating to online video privacy. And later in the show, my conversation with author Chris Smith, sharing his book, Privacy Pandemic. How cyber criminals determine targets, attack identities, and violate privacy, and how consumers, companies, and policymakers can fight back. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. Imagine a world where you're always one step ahead of cyber threats, where your defenses are impenetrable because you see what others don't. Welcome to Team Cymru's Threat Intelligence Solutions. With real-time access to the world's largest threat intelligence data ocean, they enable you to turn the tables on attackers. Transform your security from reactive to proactive through accelerated threat hunting and incident response, made possible through automation. Empower your team with visibility and insights to start defending your organization like never before. Team Cymru. Be the hunter, not the hunted. Learn more at team-cymru.com slash cyberwire. That's team-cymru.com slash cyberwire. All right, Ben, we got some good stories to share this week. But before we do, I just wanted to make note that, uh, you know, last week we were so uh, excited to have our guest, Caleb Barlow, join us that we neglected to mention that it was our 200th episode. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> the confetti so, just went off in the studio exactly. here. Yes. Uh, so congratulations to us. I think 200 episodes is quite a milestone. And uh, it's been my pleasure to uh, share the microphone with you all these years. Me too. And, and yeah, we're going on 200 episodes, about four and a half years. And yeah, hopefully we can do 200 more, maybe get up to 1,000. There you go. And uh, yeah, we have our, our site set high. But thanks to all of our uh, <laughs> wonderful listeners. And good time to leave a five-star review, right, Dave? There you go. Yeah. See, I like it. I like it. All right, well, let's jump into our stories here, Ben. Uh, you want to lead things off for us? Yeah, so I got my story from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, a frequent source of our stories, a piece by Aaron Mackey. Uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, among others, is writing to a federal court in Northern California, asking them to uphold a federal law that protects online video viewers' privacy. Hmm. So there's this law that predates the digital age called the Video Privacy Protection Act, Um 
basically that law requires any service that offers video to the public. So in the old days, that would have been a video store. A Uh, a video rental store. Exactly. Okay. With our, you know, giant uh, VCR old school videotapes. Basically, the law requires that the business or service offering the videos to the public get customers' written consent before disclosing that information to the government or a private party. Right. Now, I am old enough to remember what triggered this law. Yeah, you've mentioned this a number of times, (laughs) and I thought of you when I saw this story because you do get a kick out of it. Yeah. You want to share why why this law Well, I mean, back in the old days when we had video rental stores, and and, uh, Ben, you're probably too young to know the joy of cruising your local video store on a Friday night to try to decide what video you were going to take home, hoping that someone hadn't already gotten to that copy of Back to the Future or... Oh, I'm (laughs) not that young. I remember, yeah, I would go every week and... Yeah. So the problem was uh, some politicians figured out, or I guess uh, enemies of politicians figured out that they could go to their local video store and uh, ask the person what videos the, the, the politician that they did not like had rented. Uh, and so when it was revealed that, you know, Senator McGillicuddy had rented, you know, Debbie Does Dallas 10 times in a <laughs> row, uh, this was not good for Senator McGillicuddy. And uh, so, you know, the quickest way to get a, a law enacted is to have it directly affect lawmakers. And that's exactly what happened. Incidentally, <laughs> haven't we lost our sense of shame? I feel like that wouldn't happen now. I feel right. like the person would just go and either deny that it happened or be like, you know what? I did watch Debbie Does Dallas, and I liked it. (laughs) That's right. It was fantastic, and what are you going to do about it? Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, But this uh, law was enacted before people had lost that sense of shame, and federal Mm. courts have applied it to digital videos as well. Hmm. Uh, So the lawsuit that's being considered in a federal court in California was brought by users of the social media service Patreon. Are you a Patreon user? Uh, I have been, certainly. We We had a CyberWire Patreon back in the day. So my understanding, I don't use it, but it's basically like a social media aggregator where you can, somebody can have their own Patreon page and post links to all their different social media sites. Right. And the lawsuit alleges that Patreon has been sharing video viewing habits of its users with Facebook. And this would Hmm. be a facial violation of this Video Privacy Protection Act because the law bans sharing this information even with private parties, not just the government. Hmm. So in response to this lawsuit, Patreon is basically saying that the law itself is overbroad. There is this doctrine called the overbreath doctrine that if the application of a law would be an overbroad burden on First Amendment associational rights, even if specific strands of the law are constitutional, the entire law would be struck down. Uh, And I think Patreon's argument here is by prohibiting it from, even with a customer's consent, sharing information through these, uh, to these other social media sites, would inhibit its associational activities and would be an inhibition on its business activities. Hmm. So the Electronic Frontier Foundation has decided to join this suit because they think this is a misapplication of the overbreadth doctrine. It's funny because they are like the world's foremost defenders of the overbreath doctrine. They've signed on to every overbroad doctrine case on the other side, basically <laughs> okay. saying that uh, there are all these overbroad laws seeking to restrict activity. Uh-huh. This is an organization that cares about online privacy. So in every case, they're basically saying this is an overbroad law. That's what actually the doctrine that was used to invalidate 
every part of the Communications Decency Act except for Section uh, 230. Hmm. But their argument here is that Patreon's simply wrong. The VPPA, in their view, advances the First Amendment and privacy interests of users because it ensures that they can watch videos without being chilled by government or private surveillance. So I think this is really a chilling effect argument that if Patreon users know that their video viewing habits might end up in the hands of social media sites, especially social social media sites that aren't responsible about protecting user privacy, not uh, to name any particular such companies. <laughs> but, we, but we're talking about Facebook. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, that's really the underlying truth here, right, is if this right. were... Uh, a more exacting, privacy-conscious social media company wouldn't be as big of a deal, but we're talking about Facebook. Right. And basically, the idea is that if people were concerned that their videos might be leaked, they might not watch uh, offensive content. Now, you know, that might just be pornography, fine, but it might be politically disfavored content. So content produced by religious minorities or political minority groups, and that would really have a chilling effect And, you know, when you have presidential candidates proposing that people should get verified, uh, personally verified in order to use social media, you can kind of connect the dots here. Hmm. There's this parade of horribles where if Patreon is allowed to share this information with social media companies like Facebook who are kind of fast and loose with their data, that might end up in the hands of an overactive government. They could use it for prosecution. Or if such an overbroad law, such as the one proposed by presidential candidate Nikki Haley, which would be to uh, require verification for any users of social media services, uh, that might end up leading to a major inhibition on associational rights and and free speech rights. Uh, And that's something that would simply be unacceptable, far more than any burden on Patreon itself. So it's a really interesting case and a really interesting brief. Uh, you can probably tell I'm more persuaded by the EFF argument here than the Patreon argument, but mm. I'm very curious to see how this turns out. This case is going to be heard sometime in the next month in this district court. So help me understand here. Is the is the argument that even if Patreon gets permission from its users in their EULA to share this information, which I'm guessing they have, that this law overrides that and says you can't do that, even even if you get permission? Yeah, uh, I think it comes down to whether it complies with the statute's provision that uh, you obtain the customer's written consent. Hmm. And it might not be explicit in the EULA that they're doing this. Okay, Uh, It might be implied in a way that the consent offered by the user is not meaningful. I think that's the allegation here. Okay, So presumably you could contract it away in the EULA, uh, but it would have to be obvious enough to an average user that they would a normal, reasonable person would understand what they were contracting away. Yeah. And I think the allegation here is that Patreon has not done that. They don't publicize in any meaningful way that a normal person can see that they're sharing some of these videos with Facebook. Do you think we're ever going to reach a point where where EULAs can be anything resembling reasonable? I think we're in a tough place with EULAs. Uh, there's kind of a misperception in the non-legal world that you can contract anything away with a EULA. Right. You can't. Uh, Courts will look skeptically on them, especially if one of the things you're contracting away is somebody else's First Amendment associational rights. You know, certainly a EULA helps and gives some legal authority to certain restrictions. But the fact that most EULAs are things that nobody ever reads uh, and that they're 
100 pages long and we're just trying to click through them, I think weighs against a lot of these providers because people aren't offering meaningful consent uh, to their services. Mm-hmm. And I think courts look disfavorably upon that. I think they're going, they're actually going into these ULAs and saying, well, if I was a reasonable person trying to gain information on what this app is going to share with this other app, I don't think I would be able to do so. This is in legalese. This is not something that a consumer would understand. And so I think there's a separation between how the courts see this and how the industry sees it, where to save ourselves from trouble, just put put something in the EULA. That'll, right. you know, that's our get-out-of-jail-free card. Sometimes yeah. it is, but very frequently it's not. Do you think we could legislatively um, make EULAs less necessary in other words if we had a ro- if we had a gdpr it seems to me like a lot of the things that are in eulas would be moot yes uh so is that a potential avenue yep but unicorns could also fly out of the sky <laughs> <laughs> tomorrow morning and i'm not betting you know my life savings on that right. so yeah i mean we've gone through this period where there've been hints that the federal government might enact a data privacy law mm-hmm. um there is that vacuum. We've gotten laws at the state level. I don't anticipate it happening anytime soon. So in the absence of something like a GDPR, it is incumbent on these companies to establish legal rights. And courts aren't always willing to defer to the companies. Uh, and I think that's wise. Like, I think there are rights that users have that cannot be contracted away in a confusing EULA that the average person would never be able to understand. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I do think a lot of what is in your standard uh, EULA language would be moot if we had something like GDPR because that lays out the consumer's rights, obligations, uh, the provider's rights and obligations in a way that's um, protected by law and is not something that's subject to these types of uneven contracts. Yeah. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes here. Uh, My story this week comes from the folks over at Lawfare. This is an article written by Justin Sherman and Devon Desai. Uh, It's titled, The Most Critical Elements of the FTC's Health Breach Rulemaking. Uh, And this is really an article about how the Federal Trade Commission is updating their health breach notification rule, the HBNR, trying to bring things up to date here that they're they're acknowledging that uh, health tech and and how we handle data is evolving uh, and that of course you know HIPAA which goes back to what 2010 I believe the rule here does yeah uh, HIPAA itself goes back to the 1980s oh okay yep. uh, that HIPAA uh, you know does while while great <laughs> at covering a lot of things, uh, is uh, incomplete in our in our digital landscape here. Um, so some of the changes that they're seeking to make uh, would focus on health data privacy. Um, it would uh, cover more entities, uh, be more specific about covering things like apps, uh, telehealth services, you know, data brokers, digital advertisers, um, all things that have kind of come to be, you know, in the time in between when, the original health breach notification rule and HIPAA itself were brought into action here. Um, they're trying to, to to clarify the regulatory guidance, uh, make it a little easier for you know smaller companies who may not have a, a big legal team here. I think it's interesting here that like a bigger picture here, uh, it's kind of relating to what we were talking about in our in your story is the FTC is taking action here. I believe partly because of 
the inaction of Congress. And the FTC has the ability to take action when Congress is unable to or unwilling to. Do you think that's a fair take? It is. I basically have a couple of points on this uh, to get across. One is I think the two biggest innovations in this space have been healthcare-related applications. Mm -hmm. Um, And honestly, this has come to light frequently with period-tracking applications in the wake of the Dobbs decision. Mm. That that's actually collecting a lot of very personal information that could be used against people who are in uh, states that are hostile to abortion rights. Mm -hmm. So if you didn't know about it before the Dobbs decision, I think you certainly know about it now. Right. And then telehealth. Uh, Telehealth was sort of a thing prior to COVID. Uh, There were certainly uh, telehealth-esque services, particularly in rural areas. But I think like the mass use of telehealth and telehealth as a replacement for going into the doctor's office is really something that's taken off in the last four years. I know Maryland, uh, the state that we're in, didn't actually allow telehealth appointments prior to COVID. The governor in an emergency regulation waived that requirement and people liked it enough that telehealth has stuck around. I know my wife is a provider and now a good portion of her appointments are via telehealth. Yeah, the sky didn't fall. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Uh, And why not do it? I mean, particularly when we were in the midst of a global pandemic, if you can get health services just to obtain a prescription, you know, or to show your doctor your pink eye (laughs) or, you know, some other infection on your body uh, through the video, why uh, risk going to the office and catching a communicable disease? So I think that's really the backdrop here. In terms of the legal concept, this highlights something that's really important in administrative law. Hmm. Uh, And I don't mean to get too much in the weeds here, but there's this thing called the Chevron Doctrine. comes from a 1980s case uh, called, I believe it was Chevron versus the Natural Resources something. Mm -hmm. Basically, that decision held that if statutory language is extremely clear, then administrative agencies have to defer to to that statutory language. But if the language is ambiguous, then the administrative agencies have some deference to interpret the language as they see fit to meet modern circumstances. Hmm. So Chevron has allowed federal agencies like the FTC to enforce actions like this, even uh, when Congress stays silent, because this is a reasonable and not arbitrary interpretation of HIPAA and some of the laws enacted concurrent with HIPAA. The concern here is that there are at least two or three Supreme Court justices who are extremely hostile to this uh, notion of Chevron deference. Hmm. Um, I know Justice Neil Gorsuch, who was confirmed in 2017, has written extensively about how he hates Chevron deference and that it's been bad for balance of power between Congress and administrative agencies. And if that deference is struck down, then agencies wouldn't be able to take action like this Hmm. uh, because this is something that's not authorized by the clear language of the statute. So I know that seems very legalese in the weeds, but I think that could be very relevant for something like this where we need to give agencies some deference to improve regulations to meet modern circumstances. Yeah. This article points out that uh, the FTC back in February of last year uh, enforced this rule for the first time. They they uh, used it against uh, prescription drug provider GoodRx, and then again in May against a fertility tracking app called Premom. And both of those companies were alleged to have 
shared individuals' health data with third parties without proper disclosures. I mean, again, getting back to our previous story. Right, right. And I think uh, it's good to see some administrative action here. It's very hard for individual users to know that their data has been uh, released to a private entity and sold to data brokers. Certainly, if that data is released, it's hard for an individual user to sue a you know giant conglomerate tech company. Uh, mm-hmm. People just simply don't have the resources. So I think it is incumbent upon agencies like the FTC uh, to have these administrative fines uh, and consequences for these companies that are being fast and loose with people's data. And we're talking about health data. It's stuff that's very personal. I mean, I think that's what makes health data so unique. Is it fair to say that, in general, HIPAA has been considered a success? I think so. I think... uh, HIPAA is limited in its application to covered entities. Yeah. And it seems like sometimes it takes a while for administrative agencies to catch up with the kind of health organizations that people are actually using. Mm. So mm-hmm. online health portals came online in the 2000s, and it took a while for federal regulators uh, to make those uh, health online health portals uh, be covered entities under HIPAA. And that's just kind of the nature of the law. But I think... The purpose of HIPAA obviously was was sound, and despite kind of the mass understanding of what HIPAA is and what it does, I do think it's it's been worthwhile and it's been a success. Suppose the Supreme Court does uh, strike down, uh, you know, a, an organization like the FTC's ability to come at these sorts of things, and and so then it kicks back to Congress, right? Right. And then, so if Congress does what Congress does best nothing. lately, which is nothing. Does that leave us in a bit of a Wild West situation here where there's there's no avenue for enforcement? Pretty much, and that's what a lot of people want. I mean, it would defang administrative agencies. I if see. you're hostile to administrative agencies and you think they're butting in on your business, which a lot of people do, probably yeah. like half the country thinks that, right? then you'd be in favor of getting rid of something like Chevron deference. Uh, and that's why a lot of people are in favor of it. But yeah, that would be the uh, the obvious consequence there, is there would be no uh, ability for these agencies to be flexible with vague language in federal statutes. Mm. Congress would have to step in. And it's as we've mentioned many times, it's hard to pass a piece of legislation in Congress, even if you have majority support. Congress is a cartel. Uh, what bills come to the floor is decided by leadership very frequently, even if there is majority support. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and they're also bound by arcane Senate rules that introduce these time constraints on the things that you can do in a given congressional session. So, yeah, I mean, it would be, I think it would be a major change and it's something we need to look out for over the next few years. Mm. All right. Well, we will have links to both of these stories in the show notes. And of course, we would love to hear from you. If there's something that you would like us to consider for the show or you have some feedback, you can email us. It's caveat at n2k.com. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, 
AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with author Chris Smith about his book, Privacy Pandemic, How Cyber Criminals Determine Targets, Attack Identities, and Violate Privacy. Chris himself was, was a victim of uh, some uh, digital identity theft. A really interesting conversation here with author Chris Smith. Uh, so back in 2018, I was uh, running global business development for a hot new crypto company called Civic. And at the time... I was in a romantic relationship with someone and had no idea that one of the one of her goals and her collaborator's goals was to compromise my entire digital existence and my family's existence. So for 18 months, my iCloud was compromised. And every time we tried to address it uh, through, you know, working with my tech guys at Civic you know, hiring digital forensic specialists and meeting with people like the FBI, we could never fully figure out how they compromised me to that level until we learned that my mom's house and her router was the, uh, was the, uh, the attack surface, essentially. And so every time I'd go home and visit my family, it would, ha- it would start to happen every couple of weeks after that. And we couldn't figure out why until we learned about my mom's uh, router being compromised. So I decided to write a book for, say, the 95% of the consumer population that never changes their iCloud passwords or updates their security and privacy uh, settings, and to use my personal story as a way to guide readers through what the current threats are in the world of cybercrime and identity theft. Do you suppose that that you were targeted specifically, or was this uh, an opportunistic sort of thing? Um, so it's very clear based on the data and the forensics that my team and I have now, you know, reviewed, you know, a couple of years ago, that they compromised me three weeks before I joined Civic. So it's very clear what their what their goal was was to try and embed themselves into my iCloud, which was you know at the time uh, my personal iCloud connected to everything at, at Civic, which I never do anymore. Um, so I believe it was uh, opportunistic because I was joining a very hot crypto company that had just raised thirty three million in an ICO, and it was I think it was more opportunistic. And it strikes me that there's the added um, uh, element of having a, a romance scam thrown in as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that was one of the hardest things uh, that I needed to get over. Um, but once we realized that they had compromised my mom's house, I I got over it pretty quickly and got to action in terms of wanting to take them down um, and hired experts and privacy and digital crisis management and talk to former CIA, F, you know, NSA type people. Um, and yeah, it, was, it wasn't easy, but it definitely uh, propelled me into uh, being more active about doing everything I could to take them down. But, you know, the one thing about that is, is that I'm definitely not the first person 
that's ever experienced something like this, and I won't be the last. And I read about, I see articles all the time on LinkedIn or you know news outlets about elderly people losing everything because they were scammed or you know these pig butchering type scams that are happening a lot in crypto or were and so I, I you know it was it was a difficult thing to get over but you know I'm not the first and I won't be the last unfortunately it strikes me that you know you certainly being a person of above average knowledge and capabilities when it comes to things like cybersecurity uh, that's really a cautionary tale for the rest of us, you know, folks who don't have that particular skill set that you do. So that's a really important point. So um, I knew virtually nothing about cybersecurity until this happened. And while I worked in the technology space and I understood things like why multi-factor was important and, you know, why needing to update your passwords and your credentials were all important, right? Like I was probably, like you said, above average in terms of my security knowledge, but from a cyber perspective, I had very little knowledge, right? And over the last five years, I've met with some amazing people that have helped educate me. And I'm looking at it from a very different perspective because I'm someone that has experienced a cyber attack and identity theft. And the only way that I know how to deal with things like that is to throw myself into what I'm experiencing. And so the amount of people that I have uh, engaged with either to hire to help me do forensics or to help me understand how and why this happened has really uh, opened my eyes to what's really happening around the world and what we need to do to better protect uh, the everyday American and the everyday global consumer. So I didn't have true cyber experience, but I've learned from some amazing people in the industry. Can you take us through the experience, uh, the, the the successes, the frustrations? You know what what you learned about our ability to counter this sort of thing. So I think one of the biggest challenges that I see is, you know, most victims or targets of identity theft or someone that's been uh, part of a breach, like at 23andMe, um, which in my opinion is a really horrific breach based on the fact that people's DNA and the bad actors were building lists of types of people, is there's really no retribution most of the time for targets or victims of these crimes because you generally do not know who you are going to go after. And while I had a very good sense of why I was being targeted and by who, they were still never held to account, which is part of the reason why we had to, you know, change names and locations in the in the account of privacy pandemic. But I think that's the biggest challenge is you have companies like Okta or 23andMe that have been in the news a lot lately that come out and say, oh, it was only 1% of our uh, customer database. And then it turns out, uh, like in Okta's case, they blamed an employee uh, for the breach. And then it turns out that their entire customer database was breached. And that's, I think, probably close to a billion username, password credentials that are out there. And so there's no warning system for us as the consumer or the user of these products to be able to fight back. And so I think that's one of the biggest challenges that I see 
as someone that's coming into the industry and building a new company to uh, help solve that gap, in our opinion. And one of the things that you touch on in the book is this notion of self-sabotage, as you describe it, and, and how uh, the criminals rely on that. Can, can you take us through what, what you mean by that? Yeah, so I think, I think you know, in, in, in most romantic relationships, you start to build trust with your partner, right? And so I think that we start to reveal a lot of information about ourselves to the people that we're in love with or, you know, people that are really close friends of ours. And what I've come to the realization is, is that you have to be extremely careful of the amount of information that you share, um, not because you shouldn't feel like you can't trust your partner or, you know, your, your best friend or whatever, but you just never know their motives. But also what I've learned is you never know if they might be targeted to get to you, right? And so that's a very scary reality that I stepped into because of what happened to me. But after speaking to lots of, you know, people in this world, like Ava Velasquez, who was very kind and wrote the foreword to my book. She's the president and CEO at the Identity Theft Resource Center. I've learned so much from Ava and her team about family fraud and how kids get their social security number destroyed before they even have a chance before they turn 18 because a parent or a relative has been leveraging their social security number. So I think when it comes back to self-sabotage, it's just really understanding who has access to your, as simple as your code, to your phone, you know, the pin to your code on your phone or on your device, and just making sure that you stay on top of it because you just never know where a leak might be and it might be someone very close to you. I'm curious, you know, based on everything that you've been through, do you have any specific uh, advice for the policymakers out there? Well, I think the Biden administration is doing what they can. Um, obviously, we need to take it a step further. Um, so one, you know, the recent executive order on artificial intelligence, I think is a really good step, especially what's been happening recently with, you know, Sam and OpenAI and everything that's going on there. But two, I think we need to have some federal regulations in place around two things. One, if a company does get breached and it impacts millions of Americans or millions of global, cons global consumers, I think there needs to be stronger, a stronger stance on when that happens and how the company needs to um, be able to report on what happened and be able to make whole anyone that may experience some sort of cyber attack or identity theft because of the breach. I mean, there's like 24 billion username and credential combinations available for purchase on the dark web. And that didn't happen because we all decided to put all of our information out there. So I think because of what states like California is doing around privacy and, you know, other states are looking at doing or having similar, you know, laws within their state, I think the government needs to come in and say, how can we have a significant role if a company does get breached? I think the second thing that we need to think about as consumers is being our best ally when it comes to protecting our digital life, because the amount of breaches that are happening on an annual basis um, is appalling. Um, that we as consumers want to be able to trust the businesses 
that we're you know doing business with and if they're not protecting our digital identity that's a problem so i think that there needs to be an extreme awareness on the consumer side and i do believe that organizations like the web3 identity coalition the digital chamber of commerce they are trying to do everything that they can to educate the policymakers so that they understand how big the threat is to uh, the everyday American. What are the, the takeaways for you? What do you hope that people who've read the book will come away with? The biggest thing that I'm hearing from people that have read the book is um, their own awareness about what they haven't been doing to protect themselves. Um, so the first thing that I hope that people take away from the book is having a better understanding of their own digital uh, privacy and security and how that impacts their daily life. Um, two, I hope they have a better understanding of what's really happening every time we as consumers log on to the internet and even have conversations like this and what our data, where our data goes, how it's being used. And finally, I just think helping them understand how they can become more vigilant in their day-to-day -day lives about the choices that we make when it comes to signing up for this service and how could this potentially impact my digital privacy and security and just being more aware because most of the people I assume that are going to be listening to this podcast are what I would deem as the 5% of the world that understand cybersecurity and, you know, digital privacy in a very specific way. But the everyday consumer may not be thinking about the fact that they haven't updated their iCloud password since 2014 and how that could potentially impact their entire digital life. Ben, what do you think? I just really admire uh, Mr. Smith from using his own experience to pass on advice to others, talking about how how much work it was to get his life back uh, after all of these fraudsters stole his private information and there are little ways that they can attack it even to this day. It's been, what, several years yeah. uh, since this has happened. So it's just encouraging for me to see him use this experience to uh, inform the rest of us on what the risks are and how we can uh, ameliorate those risks. Yeah, really a harrowing situation to be in, and uh, we certainly appreciate him reaching out to us and sharing his story. Uh, again, that's author Chris Smith, and the book is titled Privacy Pandemic, How Cyber Criminals Determine Targets, Attack Identities, and Violate Privacy. We appreciate him taking the time. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-plus year partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber.
That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. A quick reminder that N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our executive producer is Jennifer Iben. The show is edited by Trey Hester. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.